The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. must be the place or as you would pronounce it David this must be the place and you're listening to Elizabeth Taylor from RMIT University and David Nichols from the University of Melbourne and we've started this podcast as a sort of I guess building on something we used to do with 3RRR on a summer slot yes called the urbanists yes but we decided to branch out into podcasts why because the world needed to hear us uh, opine on various uh, urban issues and uh, spatial issues and... Culture, society, space, place, planning. That's right. Geography, really. Yes. Ge- we're not geographers, so we have to be clear on that. Yes. I'm a planner. We, we're trying to say fewer P's, though. <laughs> yes, we'll try and I'm keep the P's planner. to a minimum. That's tough with, with planning. <laughs> <laughs> but we thought with the... <laughs> Oddcast um, that we have more opportunity to, I guess, not be so driven by the news. And also, you know, there's so many opportunities to interview people and things that come out that aren't in summer, for example, that uh, we'll give it a go. So as we started working on this podcast, one of the first things we do did a couple of months ago was we headed out to Werribee. You remember that, David? I remember it very well. I remember it as if it was uh, July. It was July. Okay. Good memory. Um, and we went out to the Western Treatment Plant in Werribee, uh, partly because I'd heard about this place, Cockerock, that used to be a town um, inside the sewerage farm. And I must have... Something piqued my interest. And I heard someone at work, knew people that worked at water, Melbourne Water. And we went out there with... Well, you were there. I was there. Yes. Marcus was there. Mar- yeah, Marcus Lancaster was there. He's a PhD student of mine. He's a man of few words, though, I noticed. At least well, that is true, but on, many thoughts. Yes, at least on this recording, uh, Marcus is inaudible, but his presence is... As if you listen hard, felt. you can hear him cogitating there. <laughs> so our first sort of pre-recorded thing is, is um, I guess, uh, our trip out to Cockerock or the Western Treatment Plant. But do you want to kind of flag what other kinds of stories we'll be doing on... Yes, I think that, I mean, we've been talking about this a lot and I think that this podcast is something that will, uh, you know, uh, probably morph a little bit and probably be a little bit organic in the in the way that it, um, you know, unfolds over the coming months and years, decades, I'm not sure about centuries, but we'll see. Um, I, I'm hoping that we will be able to address um, all kinds of things, you know, not, not be totally Melbourne-centric. Well, we have a lot of Finnish content for a start, We, we have we? quite a bit of Finnish content coming up. Um, thanks, Partly due to your to me, sabbatical, my recent sabbatical in, yes, in, that's in right. Finland. And um, we'll, we'll also, you know, so we'll be keeping tabs on things worldwide and we obviously we can't do everything. We're not, we're not trying to encompass, um, you know, the whole current affairs world of you know planning urban issues and so on where um, we're able to be a little bit niche I think and uh, we can follow our interests I mean podcasts and you know they're 
it's 2016, everyone's got one. And um, we just we just happen to have this, uh, this defined uh, set of interests that uh, I think we can, uh, we can actually make something quite you know, individual and uh, interesting and possibly sometimes even important. Wow. That's, um, I like the word important, though I've never used it about my own work except under duress. <laughs> so thanks. And um, from that, we might just run into the Cockerock. Cockerock. Let's, let's go into the Or into the, into the briefly, cockerock. I'll briefly say why I was interested in doing the story on Cockerock. It just seemed like when we were talking about what the podcast was going to be about, it's about places, um, planning, history, um, cultural kinds of stories about places and I think this you know um town ghost town in a sewage farm has a lot that's that's in that but perhaps a little a lot of our future material will be more just interviews but this is uh Cockerock I think Sarah suggested we call this piece dropping the kids off at the pool that's so that's (laughs) tasteful so tasteful in Melbourne, chances are you don't give too much thought to where what you flush down the toilet goes to. The important part is it just goes away. But the chances are, as with 80% of Melbourne sewage, it travels to the Western Treatment Plant in Werribee. For much of its history, from the 1890s, the plant was known as the Metropolitan Farm. It was the most productive farm in Victoria, and the farm was, for nearly a century, a home to many people. As recently as the 1980s, hundreds of workers and their families lived in townships, including one called Cockerock, inside the sewerage farm. We took a tour with Melbourne Water Heritage Manager Paul Balasconi to see what remains of Cockerock today. Today, what we're seeing, if you sort of look, look down and then project the line out this way, mm-hmm. you know, aerially, this, this is what we today within the business call the Heritage Precinct. Right. And um, so over to our right, and actually, um, before I guess you know, the township came to an end as we know it, um, this was like a normal streetscape, and photographs and, and old movies would, would show that you know you'd be de- driving down the street, there'd be picket fences. Old photos of Cockerock show streets of weatherboard cottages with verandas and brick chimneys. They remind me a bit of some of the older houses you find in Newport today. All but a couple are gone now. I asked Paul how many people used to live here. Look, at its height, 500, there was a permanent workforce. Three state schools um, scattered around the the plant uh, because, I mean, also put this place into some sort of sense of scale. You know, it's the size of Phillip Island, 10,000 hectares. The farm had schools, shops, halls, a swimming pool, a football team. No one lives here now. Sheep are scattered across what looks like any typical, even an attractive, farm in the western district of Victoria. Apart from the street trees that trace out the remains of old streets, One of the few things that remains of the Cockerock Township today is the town's swimming pool and the adjoining change rooms. Last year, as part of a Deakin University art project called Treatment, 
Archival footage of crowds of children swimming at the Cockerup pool in the 1960s was projected onto the decaying change room walls. They just set up a, um, uh, a projector mm-hmm. hidden by your leaves, um, showing the movie up against the, uh, the partition oh. there. Oh, yeah. Spooky! <laughs> yeah, oh, look, it's, yeah, it's just... Is that just possum piss that's now? The swimming pool, like the rest of Cockerock, began to be abandoned to the possums from the 1980s. The housing had been subsidised worker housing provided by the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works, or MMBW. Workers were also provided with two milking cows per household. Over time, to cut costs and because of the growth of nearby Werribee, the board began to move workers off the farm, and in 1991 the board was abolished. It was replaced by public water companies, including what is now Melbourne Water. Not only was Cockerock gone, but so were the secure jobs, sometimes secure multi-generational jobs, that the men in Cockerock had once relied on. Some people that worked here worked were multi-generational families. Oh, well, yes, and and um, yeah, and <laughs> that's on that point. That's why uh, back in the nineties, when um, slowly, slowly, they were told. Um, you no longer have a job. Um, yeah, there was a spate of suicides, and um, and there was an expectation of yeah, I've got a job for life, and then my son will come through, presumably. Yeah, you know, if you had a son, um, there was a lot of play here, a lot of play. And you'd be surprised, through the treatment uh, project was quite overwhelming that a lot of the, the long-timers came back. It was the first time they had come back since they were perhaps retrenched in the, in the 90s. And, um, and that sort of fleshed out uh, emotions. I should also add that you know um, there's a PhD um, a project happening as, as we speak. Who's that by? It's, it's through Deacon. Yep. Uh, it, that'll be Monica Schott. You might be thinking, didn't it smell? Who would want to live and work near, let alone inside, a sewerage farm? I spoke to Deakin University PhD student Monica Schott about the research she started into what social life had been like in the communities on the Metropolitan Farm. Initially I thought it must have been really hard for people to work there and live there. And you know, what were the hardships, what were the discriminations, you know, it must have been hard. Monica pretty quickly heard a very different story. People were describing it as a bit of a utopia. One of the comments on the Facebook site Monica set up simply says, what a great time we had. And so suddenly the question wasn't about, you know, what hardships did they endure? It was more about, well, what makes a community successful? What's the social fabric that binds people together to make the community so successful that into the early 1970s, people chose to live there where they hadn't been connected to power. And they actually chose to live there without and not move off to connect to power. So it just raises the question of why was the community so successful? the smell. The farm workers work with almost a whole city's raw sewage, so the stigma from outside about living and stinking on the farm began very early. 
I found this news clipping. Where is it? Oh, here we go. <coughs> so these negative perceptions can be seen as far back as 1899 with the Yay Chronicle reporting on the appointment of new teacher Miss Schwig. And it said in this news report, so she was the new teacher for the Cockerock School. So in this news report, it referred to the town of Cockerock as a small but rapidly rising township between Little River and Werribee that was chiefly noted as a health resort, guaranteed to contain a more varied collection, to, collection of germs to the square inch than even Footscray. Uh, How fortunate is Miss Schwick? So a bit of sarcasm, <laughs> 19th century sarcasm. Yeah, so you know, that's, that's quite interesting mm -hmm. that it dates back that far. One of the stories from one guy was that, um, because I, th I think I asked him the question, something around, you know, what kind of discrimination did you face? And he said, oh no, yeah, it was fine. The only thing is, you know, you'd, you'd work all day in the paddocks, moving all this sewage around, you'd go home and have a shower, and then you'd ride into town into the pub. And sometimes the bartender would say, you know, go down that end of the bar, you smell today, don't, don't go near anybody else. <laughs> so he said, you know, on a hot day, it would just seep through your pores, the smell. Smell aside, what people seem to mainly remember about Cockerock is the job security, the pride in their work, their community, the dances, the pool. I've seen photos of people in fancy dress at the community hall. Maybe it's the same rose tint that a lost past is always cast in. But the children enjoyed an enviable level of both freedom and security. One woman um, that I met last year at treatment, she must have been in her 70s, said that when she was a girl, the whole farm was her playground and so, you know, two, what was it, 10,500 hectares of farmland was her whole playground and she would just jump on to her horse and cart and would just go and play around the whole site. Which actually sounds pretty awesome. Monica is reaching out through her PhD research and her blog, The Faraway Land of the House and Two Cows, to people who lived on the farm. It was really quite warm um, to hear the little conversations that were happening on Facebook. Um, you know, someone was saying they used to swim in that pool. One day they wanted to go for a swim, but their grandmother wouldn't let them go outside because it was too hot. So they played with something in their brother's bedroom and then they snuck out the window and went for a swim anyway. And, you know, so all these little stories are coming out. The people haven't lived in Cockerock for decades. Even the MMBW is history now. I know that um, there are two people in their 90s who were born and went to school there and worked and lived there. And unfortunately, the stories on that social history are within people, and those people are getting older, and they, those stories really need to be captured before they're all lost. I mean, when I've described proper rock, the thing that people seem to find the most interesting was that there was a whole... They're trying to grapple with this idea that there was a, a whole town there and now it's, yeah, like, it's, it's gone. gone. Yeah, and that's interesting because it was only yesterday that someone looked up the Facebook page and, and on the page there are two photos at the moment. One is of the pool that was refurbished as part of um, treatment last year. 
And the other one is a shot of, I think it's Cockrock. The photo label just says Township. And I need to speak to people to um, find out exactly what it is. But it's this black and white photo of the township and the houses are there and the roads are there and, and when someone saw it yesterday she just said oh my god that's what it looks like and so people were really quite interested in those images and I think that's going to be a fun part of the project sharing those images and footage. Another of the few buildings that remains in Cockrock today is the community hall. They used to hold dances, meetings, parties and host visitors to the farm. Inside, Paul showed us a huge lightbox display, taking up a whole wall. It shows a colour-coded map of the farm's treatment system and photos of the townships. It's set in retro wood panelling. I would have guessed it's from about the 1970s. This is uh, yeah, fantastic. It's a, it's an absolute timepiece, and uh, you, so get, you, you, you when you is can. When from? Do you think? Oh, sorry. When was this? When built? was that painting done? That oh, painting? this would have been done. Perhaps I would imagine around the 1960s. Um, it's been changed from um, vintage imperial to metric. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. So well, there, there you go. Wow, yeah, that, that's good, Dave. I actually never noticed that little little bit in terms of um, when. So definitely, I reckon sixties, and then uh, yeah, just updated accordingly. So if you look closely, um, these are light panels. So we'll, we'll get this uh, all rewired. With help from the retro light box display, Paul explains how the plant works. The Western Treatment Plant is not an ordinary sewage treatment plant. It doesn't use chemicals. Since it began in the 1890s, it has been a natural treatment facility. It uses grass and water filtration and now lagoon systems. Natural bacteria are used to treat the sewage. I asked Paul whether this made the plant special. Is the treatment plant uh, special comparatively to other cities? Oh, look, this, um, I would imagine this will probably be uh, amongst the uh, rarest type of uh, treatment plants um, in the world, in the world, and and um, and probably the most unique one in the world when you consider um, its environmental context by way of it's it's a Ramsar site. Could so, you explain what that means? So Ramsar is is actually a um, uh, how can I say. It's a classification uh, given by the, the Ramsar Convention of, uh, of uh, that concerns uh, wetlands of uh, environmental significance around the world, and and this is part of a, a wetlands uh, system. And um, in terms of, uh, it's also a um, um, long been recognised as a bird sanctuary, uh, second, perhaps, on top of Kakadu. Uh, in terms of um, the number of birds and the number of uh, migratory uh, species that it supports, and and that's all got to do with the the actual um, the water the, tre the treated water. And you've got to consider um, in an environmental context, there's never any drought here, mm. and that's another irony in the landscape. To, the place was chosen because of the, the, the drought-like conditions, and conducive to uh, land-based filtration, evaporation, and so forth. Yet there's never any drought. That's great for the for the farming operations in the past. Wow, and um, you know, as a farming enterprise, um, 
and once again it gets back to how unique this place is it would subsidize the operation of the farm was heavily subsidized by the farming it was probably the most successful farm at its peak in victoria um, so much so that the politics of farming came to play in terms of the cattle were ginormous yeah i heard they kept winning prizes kept the... winning prizes and and so um and then you'd have the politics at play talking about um you know germs and and so forth referring to pressure from other farmers to shut down what was seen as unfair competition. In the 1960s, there was also greater scrutiny of the consumption of meat from animals exposed to human waste. The plant today is still a productive farm, but it no longer produces meat for human consumption. Instead of the raw sewage, nowadays water is treated and the recycled water gets pumped back up and over the paddocks. Paul also shows us some old MMBW crests in the hall. Workers had held onto them secretly, even after the board was closed and they were ordered to destroy them. The motto on the crest says, public health is my reward. People had taken a lot of pride in working here. If you came here, you might just recognize it from TV shows and films shot here like Dr. Blake, Mad Max, Winners and Losers. It's quiet, but not too far from the city. Filmmakers can make it look kind of like anything. Paul explains. Yeah, like for instance, um, it's strange how it works, but those canary palms, those palm trees, um, were enough for an international movie to be filmed in that area some, some time ago. Um, the Oval, the Oval, they've had movie sets uh, built on that and like a, a cityscape. Um, you know, with uh, like the old Western movies with the, the facades all, all up and so forth, and they've laid concrete so it just looks like a, a, a normal street. Multifunctional. And multifunctional. I tried my best not to ask, but I had one question I was busting to ask Paul at the end of our tour. In the treatment plant, when you flush the toilet, where does it go? Does it go back out? Well, yeah. well, actually, um, this was probably the last time this was functional, probably still had septic tanks. Ironically, though, once again, we're, um, you, you've got the people that live just across the road here, and, and those houses were built in the 70s. The irony is that they were on septic tanks right up until the 1980s. Because so, they, they you know, you had the way. sewage farm across the road, yet. <laughs> so once again, all these little ironies can be fleshed out. Mm. Why uh, were they on septic so long or they just hadn't built the, the infrastructure? The, the, yeah, the infrastructure. Um, uh, that's it. One could argue, well, you know, um, just in case of pipeline whatnot, but, mm. yeah, I, I guess it was priority. Nowadays, most of us in Melbourne can take it for granted that houses are connected to underground sewers that whisk waste away. It's easy to forget that it took decades, a century even, of hard and not always fair work to connect the city to sewerage, even the people living next door to the sewerage plant. Apart from the lingering Werribee jokes, it's easy to forget the plant is even there now, let alone remember its past, including the township of Cockerock. People like Paul and Monica work to promote two basic messages about the Western treatment plant. One, that the plant has a history worth discovering and preserving, and two, that the plant continues to do work worth finding out about. And I, and I still feel that 
and history heritage has, has still got a uh, purpose in the present and that's really to contextualise what we do as, as a business but also to showcase how we're actually connected to the community. Yeah, there is um, yeah, quite, quite a, a lot of facets to this uh, place. It's quite a you know, kaleidoscope of, uh, of landscapes as much as uh, yeah, culture. You know, and, and, and I should also add, even today now, just, um, okay, albeit because of the Aboriginal Heritage Act, but that, that has uh, sort of exposed that element, that forgotten element. And we're actually quite you know, proud of actually um, revealing that layer now, uh, so much so that, like in the past, uh, we've always long had open days, for instance, where, where one, you know, once a year we open up the, uh, the doors to the community. That's long been practice. But over the last three years, we've actually introduced the, uh, the local um, Aboriginal group, the Wadawurrung people, uh, as we've had areas exposed. Um, um, you know, we want to integrate that you know, in, in that true sense of cultural landscape. Monica, the PhD student exploring Cockerock's past, is also a writer and she used to work in community relations for Melbourne Water. Working at the plant's open days is part of how she got interested in her later PhD topic. When you try and convey that story, um, you know, you would, you would start with people who would come in with pegs on their noses or they'd complain, it stinks and whatever, but by the end of two hours, they would walk away with this really new appreciation and you know you just watch the look in their eyes and it was just brilliant really it's like watching it didn't matter how old people were but it was like watching a young child being opened up to something new yeah. and that was beautiful so where does that stuff you flush down the toilet go to to the remains of cockerock inside the western treatment plant this must be the place This Must Be The Place is hosted by Elizabeth Taylor and David Nichols. You heard the voices of Paul Berlusconi from Melbourne Water, Monica Schott of Deakin University. You possibly sense the spirit of Marcus Lancaster, uh, one of my PhD students who was uh, with us at Cocker Rock. And the music for This Must Be The Place is by Andrew Bonici, who also engineered parts of the session.